Welcome to the One Stop Shop Podcast. One Stop Shop is Receiptful's weekly podcast with the goal of helping ambitious e-commerce merchants learn from the best. Each episode will have a successful business person tell us their story from their humble beginnings to their triumphs and successes of where they are today. On this episode, we interview Yen, the owner of the Violent Little Machine Shop. We discuss things like the non-conventional nature of his business, when to trust your gut, and his favorite tools for running an online store. My name is Jeff, and I will be asking the questions with my beautiful co-host, Eliana. And without further ado, let's jump straight in. What did your life look like before Violent Little Machine Shop? Like, what were you doing professionally? Well, so the very beginning, I, I guess I'll start at college. I graduated from college. I went to a business school on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Great little business school and ended up taking a little time off and going to Maui and where I have a lot of family. And I kind of just bummed around there for a couple months. And I started to feel, I guess, restless would be the word. So I was like, okay, I got to do something with my education. So I moved to Indiana and worked at a bank as a commercial credit analyst in rural Indiana, Terre Haute. If, uh, if anybody's ever been to it, it's awful. What was, awful? <laughs> so I, I, what was so awful about it? <laughs> well... Yeah, so this was kind of like working at this bank. I don't think I, I mean, I don't think I'd be where I am right now, or have done everything that I've tried to do, but not, or if not working for this bank. So it was a nine to five deal, but it was just the people that I was working with and the work that I was that I was working on. It was it was very mundane. The people that I was surrounded with, there wasn't, um, they weren't there a minute before they had to be, and. You know, if nobody was looking, they'd leave 10 minutes early every single day if they if they possibly could. But, uh, you know, this kind of punch in, punch out mentality really wasn't, you know, with where I was at. I was, you know, I I was hungry. I wanted to be a part of a cool mission and, and, and work hard and ride the ranks, if you will. So when I kind of figured out that really wasn't how the corporate world worked, especially at this place where there were, you know, I was, I guess, not to insult anybody that that works at that bank, it wasn't a very inspiring place to work. Mm -hmm. So I decided to quit that job after a year, or or I guess I should say I decided to stick it out for a year. And uh, immediately after quitting the bank, I, you know, I basically had kind of, or I guess every day at the bank, you know, sitting at my desk, I was thinking about, I was like, oh man, like what, what could I do, be doing with my time that would make my life extraordinary and, and all the kind of what ifs. So oh, I could write a book, I could go traveling, I could start a business, I could go on, you know, an epic road trip, just basically anything else but sitting at that desk where I kind of, you know, felt like it was a dead end. So as soon as I quit the bank, I moved to Phuket, Thailand to go try my hand at professional Muay Thai fighting. Wow. And okay, hold which, on. Which, can, can I pause you, know, you for a moment? I want to jump in real yeah. quick because you just totally derailed into <laughs> a direction I wasn't anticipating. So before we lose this moment, can you tell us a little bit more of like when did you know it was time to quit? Probably within the first couple months, I knew. But I had gotten the job. I was kind of juiced in. It was kind of through friends of family. So I couldn't really, I had a little bit more, or I, or I felt a little bit more responsibility to, you know, the family friends that had, that had given me a job straight out of college and to just, you know, kind of bail 
right at the get-go or, or shortly into it. I, f- I figured if I had done a year, nobody would fault me too much for doing a year where I did. So I guess I guess some of it was to save face. Did you have like an epic yeah, you- quit story or anything? Did you go in with like one of those barbershop quartets or anything? <laughs> no, I didn't. Like I said, I mean, I... I knew the CEO of the company, you know, we were old family friends. He was very good friends with my grandparents. Uh, so I just, you know, I walked in and I just was honest and they said, okay, there was no, there was no hubbub or hype around it. You know, no big deal. So what was it? How did you feel then like leaving that day when you knew you weren't going to be going back? Uh, it felt a little, I mean, I had kind of planned it in my head. I was, you know, probably six months in, I was like, all right, I'm just doing another six months here and then I'm out. So I was... I was pretty well prepared to, to not go back, you know, when it came down to it. I mean, I guess relief would have been the word. There was probably a little bit of sadness, you know, whenever you make a life change, whether small or, or big, it, it kind of, you know, that's not how I wanted it to go. I didn't, it, it wasn't even a, a good stepping stone, if you will. It was just kind of a waste of a year, but at least, I mean, in some ways it wasn't a waste of a year because you know, you do a year in hell, you feel like, you're like, oh man, now I really, like, you feel like you've wasted your time and you feel like you have to make up for it by doing something extraordinary. So it really set me off on this path and and kind of a personal mantra where I'll continuously ask myself, like, am I living an extraordinary life? And if, if the answer is no, then I, I, I pretty much immediately put into plan, you know, ways to change that. All right, so that that's a good segue back to being a Muay Thai fighter. So when I was at the bank, I was like, I was like, man, I am not living an extraordinary life. I'm wasting my time. What can I do to change that? And at that point, I was, I think I was twenty, I don't know, I was twenty three, twenty four, kind of somewhere around there, maybe twenty five. And I was, I'm not a gifted athlete by any means. I've always been athletic. I play, you know, I was a three sport athlete in high school. Uh, played collegiate rugby, but you know I'm, I'm shorter as well. I'm, I'm five foot seven, so every bit of athletic success I've ever had has been as a result of you know me just having to work my ass off. So you know at that point in my life, at 25, I was kind of you know I, I was kind of feeling a little bit like I had missed the boat as far as like trying to be you know really good at a sport or like doing something really extreme. So, you know, to me, Muay Thai fighting was basically the most extreme thing I could think of from like what my life was right then, which was, you know, commercial credit analyst wearing a suit and a tie to a bank every day, like in Indiana, to, you know, to going to Thailand and living in the jungle and eating on the floor, you know, at the gym and, you know, training two times a day and transforming myself into, you know, something completely different. And uh, to me, that was just kind of really exciting. And I knew it was going to be really hard, and I wasn't even sure if I could do it. But I figured with enough dedication and training, I could get over there and and make a go of it. So yeah, I went. I went there for basically three months, and lived at this gym and trained two times a day, and you know lived and ate and and trained all at the gym. Like basically didn't do anything else, and uh, ended up having two pro fights kind of towards the tail end of my trip. And won them both and came back. And yeah, I was super excited about it. That's the perfect word to use because it, I thought it was going to be a life changer. 
But when it was all said and done, I was like, well, I kind of pretty much feel the same. But I really enjoyed the whole the whole journey of like, you know, transforming myself and preparing myself to succeed in such a different environment. And so, you know, when it was all said and done, I was like, you know, this didn't change my life. It was like a good little starting point, but you know, maybe it did change my life and I really wasn't cognizant of that. But, uh, I was like, how can I up the ante on this, if you will? And so while I was kind of wrapping up my, my trip in Thailand, I was like, okay, what can I do? That's like, you know, that's putting yourself on the line still. And, you know, you got to train super hard for it and it's dangerous and, you know, it's physical. So in my head, I was like, what's the next extraordinary thing I could tackle? I kind of got in my head that I wanted to be a CIA officer, which is, you know, just a spy. So I started looking at the process of, oh, were you going to say something, Jeff? No, I'm I'm just intrigued by your story. I know, right? (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, when I look back at it, it almost sounds like a bunch of, am am I allowed to swear on this podcast? It's fine with me. (laughs) I was going to say, when I look back on it, it almost sounds like a bunch of bullshit. And it's going to get a lot worse. (laughs) So I started looking into like what it took to be a CIA officer. So I applied for the program uh, when I got back stateside and he got a couple rounds of interviews, but ultimately they were like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I think this was back in 2006 or 2007. So it was, you know, things in the Middle East were super, uh, they were going pretty hard and they didn't, I, I, I speak French. My mother's French Canadian. You know, I thought I'd, I, you know, I'd at least have a shot, but they don't. They don't need any French linguists at this point. It's all about Pashto and Farsi and and Arabic. So they said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. So my backup plan at that point was going to be to join the military, and I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to join the special operations forces because you know we weren't super far removed from nine eleven at this point, and things were just kind of getting good over there. So, you know, I thought that'd be a, a really cool way to, you know, just kind of see what it was all about. And so I looked at, you know, the Marines, the Air Force, the Army and the Navy and, and kind of what all their special operations forces were and what they were all about. And I eventually landed on trying to become a Navy SEAL. So for about the next year and a half after that, I, you know, I basically just trained as a triathlete all day long you know, turned myself into a really good swimmer and a really good runner and ended up going to Bud's, which is the selection course for the SEAL teams. And I was in Bud's class two seven so the Hell Week. And then I ended up ultimately, you know, failing and quitting in Hell Week. I was 27 at the time. And then I, I ended up getting out of the military about a year and a half after that for, for medical separation and and yeah um kind of started my entrepreneurial career right after that i'm not gonna call you violent but do you think this has something to do with the naming of the shop violent little machine because i was always curious why that name and what it meant and what's the story behind it if there's a story yeah so originally originally the you know my business was going to be called arms keep like arms like the right to bear arms and then keep, like, you know, the right to keep them. But it never really sat well with me. And I've named a couple businesses prior to that. 
and, you know, kind of gone through the exercise of naming businesses and writing a whole list of words and synonyms and, you know, doing all that. So it was kind of a placeholder. But then this little industrial space came up for sale in my uh, town. It's a very small town. And when I knew that I was going to kind of have a home base for the shop, you know, rather than working from my condo, you know, I knew it was going to be a shop. So I had shop and it was kind of a little shop. So I, you know, little shop sounded funny. And then, you know, we were, were military and kind of tactically oriented the industry that we're in. So Violent Little just kind of came up, you know, one day randomly. It was kind of more as a joke. I mean, it's such a fun little name. It is. Uh, Violent Little it Machine is. Shop that, that says so much about your company, you know, right off the bat, you know, which looking back, I'm looking at, you know, why that's been a successful name or why that's been a successful brand to kind of build this under is, you know, it automatically tells people that you don't take yourself too seriously. But B, it also kind of orients you right in the, you know, right in the industry of military, tactical, law enforcement, you know, and the and the shooting enthusiast industry. You know, I kind of just came upon it by chance. But as soon as I hit it, I knew it was going to be a winner. And then what is the company? So people that maybe aren't familiar with you and what you do, what? how would you summarize your company to newbies? Well, I get asked this at trade shows sometimes. And we're so kind of over the... Uh, I'm so over pitches and like, you know, people have asked me before, they're like, so what's the pitch? And I'm like, there is no pitch. Like, we just make a bunch of bullshit. And could you be maybe more specific? Like, <laughs> so, yeah, so like, what? tell me about this bullshit. <laughs> yeah, would love to. So like, you know, this, this guy asked me, you know, it was an honest question and he wasn't trying to be snarky or anything, but he's like, so what's the pitch? And like, I, I just wanted to buy some stuff from his company. I wasn't like trying to pitch him on my company or anything like that. I just wanted to buy one of his products. And I was like, well, it caused me to think. I was like, well, there actually really isn't a pitch. I just kind of started this as a lifestyle business, kind of like a Tim Ferriss four-hour work week sort of deal. And, you know, thinking it was going to be that. We just make a bunch of, like, morale patches. And, you know, we make wallets and trigger necklaces and bracelets. And it's just kind of all knickknack stuff. None of it's too important. None of it helps people you know, stay safer and like, we don't make real equipment. We make stuff that's fun, which, you know, there's a whole side of this industry that's, you know, it's called morale patches. So every piece of gear that a military or a tactical or like law enforcement person wears usually has Velcro on it. And people will wear little patches that indicate like what unit they're in or what department they're in or like, so it's kind of like transformed into this like total side industry of like making like ridiculous patches out of all sorts of, you know, movie quotes and scenarios and sayings and art. And it's just like it's this whole thing and that I never even knew existed. I kind of fell into it by accident. When I originally started buying a little machine shop, you know, we actually had machined aluminum products and that's what we, you know, were making and designing and se- and trying to sell. But this was, you know, kind of back in our infancy. So we didn't actually have, we didn't really have critical mass as far as like customers. We were just like trying to get our name out there. So it was kind of slow going at first. And then one day, one of my Navy SEAL buddies came and visited me in Sun Valley. You know, so we have a laser cutter here and we can make a lot of things on these laser cutters. And he asked me if they were going on a deployment to um, to South America, and he asked me if we could make a, a morale patch for his unit 
for his platoon when they were going downrange. And uh, I said, sure. And so we, we cranked out, you know, over the course of three hours, we like worked on the art and made a couple of iterations of this patch on, on leather that was, uh, you know, etched on the laser and then cut out on the laser. And then I took a photo of the original, or, you know, we took a photo of kind of the end product. He texted it to his platoon and about an hour later, I probably had a thousand dollars worth of orders. So I was like, huh, this might be an interesting business. So we started doing more and more patches and, you know, fast forward two and a half, half years later and we're we're one of the market leaders for patches so it's it's kind of been super interesting the way that it's it's all worked out because that's that's not what i saw at all that's amazing so that's how you got your first customer if i understand right uh no i had i had some other customers but that's kind of what opened my eyes to you know leading us down the path that we're at now which we ultimately found you know a lot of success in whereas before just our our machined aluminum products you know we were selling them here and there but you know, whether that was a, a product of the fact that we were like brand new and we didn't have, you know, search engine rankings or an established email list or, you know, what have you, we didn't really start to take off until, you know, patches. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of leads into our next question with, you've been quoted before, if, if we're getting this correctly, that an opportunity to be free from old fashioned, risk adverse and analyzed to death thinking where little actually gets done, like kind of being posed against that. And so this was sort of a clear opportunity. But in general, when you are going through your day-to-day business choices and things, where's that line for you between a gut feeling and following it versus what the hard data actually tells you? Well, first, I love that you did your homework and found that article <laughs> where I got quoted. <laughs> That's a, uh, that, yeah, that was, that a was from your about, and- us, uh, about Us page, right? And where you actually say oh. that you do say specifically that it gets updated very rarely. So, but I'm I'm you know I'm pretty sure that I mean from speaking with you that this is this is how you still are. You sound like a very intuitive person, and and you know you you follow your gut. Oh no, you're right. I thought you guys had looked up this other article that are uh, we have this like local magazine, and they did a piece on on the Vinyl Little Machine Shop a couple of years ago. Uh, I thought that's what, that, that sounded like something I would have said in that. But anyways, yeah, still very impressed. You know, it, it kind of all goes back to knowing the customer. So, you know, I built this company, you know, what, what we do is, is very much an extension of us. So it's like me and my friends, me and my military buddies, we get together and we drink some beers and you know, people start quoting movies and telling jokes and, you know, it's just kind of classic, classic bullshitting around with the boys. And that's very much, it's a very much homogenous type of atmosphere in the military and law enforcement and kind of the gun community. Everyone's kind of like that. And so it was really easy. Oh, I'm not going to say any of it was easy, but as far as following your gut, it's like, if we think it's funny, like 99% chance, like all of our other customers find it's funny as well. So we stay pretty true to that as far as the litmus test of like, you know, what we think will sell or what we, what we don't think will sell. I mean, you know, we're wrong. We're wrong all the time, but I think most of the time, you know, but even when you're wrong, we're still hitting singles and doubles. You know what I mean? Like we, which is still pretty happy with. What about what's one of the favorite times you've had so far where you were right, where maybe you weren't sure, but you went for it and it worked out? It'd probably be with our little box of violence. 
that's a subscription box that we launched in December and we weren't very sure about it. And we had had this idea kind of waiting in the wings for, you know, at least a year or so, but it, it takes so much work to put these subscription boxes together and curate them on a monthly basis that we, uh, you know, we waited a little while until, you know, until things calmed down until we had a little bit of time and the manpower to, to focus on it. And, you know, when we originally launched it, we only launched a hundred of them, but they were at, you know, $50 a piece plus, you know, 10 to $15 shipping, depending on where you live. And I wasn't sure how it would do at all. So we launched it, launched it out to the email newsletter. And, you know, it took about five minutes for us to get our first sale. And then I turned the Shopify notifications on, like, which now they make like a little cha-ching noise. And for the next hour, it just cha-chinged nonstop. Like there wasn't like, there wasn't 10 seconds that went by that where it didn't cha-ching. It did, it, yeah, so it seems. But, uh, but yeah, we sold out our first round of the boxes in less than an hour, which was pretty cool. At which point we were like, okay, we're on to something here. That's amazing. And why did you decide to use Shopify as a, as a platform for your website? I, I had another, uh, you know, right when I got out of the military the partner and I had uh, you know we had originally built a you know we had originally hired a developer to code you know an e-commerce store for us um, the resources at that time were very you know they were almost non-existent like there was no Shopify back in those days or if there was like we hadn't heard about it yet and and some of the other e-commerce carts they were all kind of you know they weren't as robust and streamlined as they are now and, and, you know, easy to manage and, you know, the dashboard right in front of you, it was, it was kind of a little bit more, um, I, I don't think they had their stuff together. So we ended up co- having our own thing coded, which didn't work well either. And after a couple of years of that, you know, we kind of readdressed the conversation of like, okay, like what if we use an e-commerce platform right out of the box, like a Shopify or a Volusion or big carts or, or big commerce, whatever it is. And we, you know, we evaluated all of them and we ended up just going with Shopify because it looked like, you know, compared to Volusion, for example, like we, we actually went with Volusion first and we didn't like it like right off the bat, just their interface was a little, you know, it was like PC versus Mac, like Macs are a little bit, you know, everything they do is just like a little bit cleaner in front of you. You might have a little bit more options like to do, your own custom coding and stuff in Volusion or whatever, or that, that might've been the case back then. But like, that's why we went with Shopify. It was just, it was clean. It was easy. And it let us focus on what we needed to focus on. So it's really rad hearing your story and everything from like, just you sort of following your heart and what you needed to do and, and doing these different things. And then now with the business, and even as you describe like, your product planning sessions is just getting together with the guys and having some drinks and throwing around jokes. What can you say or or what kind of advice do you have for businesses and brands being true to themselves? I mean, it's kind of our main focus here, you know, on that note, you know, the business of patches or, or patches in and of themselves are not very, you know, they're not serious. They're not, none of it's life or death. Right. So we never really act that way, like with regard to them, you know, whereas, you know, we realize what our product is like, like we're in the business of, we're like in a feel good business. We make joke products. So we never take it too seriously. Although 
the way in which we run these business, the way in which we run this business, we do take very seriously with regard to our processes and, you know, how we administer it, you know, with regard to Shopify or some of the, you know, all the other apps that we use to kind of have it all come together and with regard to our time. So, you know, that lets us kind of focus on, you know, what it is we really do, which is like come up with, with good content at the end of the day. And if it doesn't pass kind of our muster or kind of our bullshit tests, then we don't do it. Can you do, what's that um, test? Like, what does that actually mean? You know, I go back to like, you know, cause this brand is like, it's such an extension of my personality or like it was at first, like when it was just me, but now, you know, now I've got, you know, two full-time guys working for me as well as two free in-house. So it's like, we have a, we have a bunch of people involved now and it's almost taken on its own. You know, I can remove myself from the business sometimes and, and the voice, like the narrative that, that gets crafted is still virtually the same because not that, you know, my guys start to speak like me, but we all kind of get in the narrative of like, you know, what it is we've created here. So when they write product copy, for example, like sometimes I can't tell the difference between my product copy and theirs because they're just on it. You know what I mean? What kind of advice then? Like, let's say whoever, maybe keep it more generic, but somebody running their own e-com type platform, what areas would you recommend that they focus on in order to be true to the brand? Like you said, there's this differentiation between you're running your business, you want your systems, you want it to be streamlined, that type of thing. But what are the areas that you feel like people can really shine within their companies and their brands? Yeah. Well, so I say this to my guys all the time, like, especially like, you know, if I bring a new guy on board, it's the voice, like finding your voice, finding your narrative. So example, like a new guy will come on board and, you know, I've hired him because of his, well, I'll use a specific example. We just hired a a Navy SEAL that was, that just got out of the military and he's hilarious. He's one of the funniest guys I know. And he'll come in and he'll start writing product copy and he'll like, he'll overanalyze it and try to start, he tries to write what he thinks I want him to write when what I really want him to do is be himself. And that shows, you know, and, and and find his own voice on how to do, on how to do his, um, on how to write a product. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, it's, it's all about this narrative and it comes through in everything that you do, like, and, and all your products. So like, you know, it's like, what's your story and why is it interesting to people? That's what my advice would be to, you know, to anybody who has an e-commerce store. I'm like, okay, why is this an interesting place to be? Like if I'm spending, whether it's 30 seconds or 10 minutes on your site, like why am I interested in this? Is it because your products are better? Is it because they're cooler? Is it because the vibe of the company is cooler? And that all kind of comes together. You know, there's a lot of different parts and they all have to come together to like cast this narrative and this story. Of, of why it's interesting. Hey, am I hitting your question? No, yeah, you, you got it. You got it spot on. Yeah, it's like, and but the only way to really do that is, I mean, that's kind of why it's easy for us. It's because like our customer is us. So it's like the only way to do that is to really like know your customer. And if like, and if you're going to go, if you're going to try to like think about, you know, I granted not all business, I mean, businesses are not as niche as ours is. So it's like, it's really easy for us to do that because it's so niche. It's such a specific customer and they're so, you know, the places that you can reach them are so specific that it's really easy to craft that narrative because like all you got to do is be yourself. 
but with like a larger company that has like a larger customer base, you know, like Receiptful, for example, like you guys market to, you know, everybody basically. Uh, almost. <laughs> yeah. So that's like, that's a lot harder to do in my opinion. It's like, how do you market to everybody? Cause it's almost like, you know, we have it kind of ingrained over here. It's like, not everything is going to be interesting to everybody. And if somebody doesn't think something's funny or interesting, that's okay. Because like, we're not trying to resonate with everybody. Right. So if you try to resonate with everybody, you're going to resonate with nobody. Exactly. So that's what we try to do here. I mean, it's a very specific group of people, you know, and, and I guess we just got lucky that that group of people is, is large enough to sustain a business like this, you know. Right. And it's, it's extremely important for, for every business to know their customers, as you said, and to really not try to be something to everybody because you'll end up nowhere. Right. And, and that's something that, that we've noticed when, you know, we were looking at your shop and one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you and we felt that you're a very real person. For example, on your website, I saw somewhere where you were saying that you had a minimum order of $200. And if you're not willing to spend that much money, please don't inquire. Right. And it was, I mean, it was probably phrased better than that. It was probably like a nicer way to say it, but that's the message. And it was probably me. <laughs> but you know but it's it's really refreshing because you know and i and not to take away from your light i mean you are our guest but you know here at receiveful also we sometimes have some customers that unfortunately don't see things the way we do and you know and it's okay we want e-commerce you know business owners to understand that it's okay that if you're not the answer to to everybody's question it's okay if you if you don't have the solution to everybody's problems because you really want to do business with people who want to do business with with you and you know, who believe in your product. And so why do you think it's important to have clear boundaries and expectations with your customers? And do you have any tips for our listeners to communicate these things and have really the courage to to speak up their minds, to say, this is what I'm willing or not willing to do for my customers? Yeah. Well, I mean, great question. So at the beginning, I mean, I go back to my own experience. At the beginning, I had this laser downstairs in our shop. I'm upstairs. I have like an upstairs office um, in our little industrial space. So we have this laser downstairs that's just sitting there and we've got this website, you know, this great website that we designed and it's, you know, it's on, it's ready to go. We're just like kind of twiddling our thumbs here, you know, waiting for customers to come in. So I had to, at the very beginning, you know, we had to hustle. We had to hustle pretty hard to you know, to make money and to figure it out. When we figured out patches were going to, were going to be a thing. We started getting more and more referrals like from military and law enforcement. And we started getting a bunch of orders through them. And then finally, or, you know, and then orig- and then um, we reached out to a bunch of different companies. Like we went to their websites and we'd pull their logo and we would make them patches with their logo and then send them the patches and be like, Hey, like, you know, we're a new patch company or like we're a patch company. We'd love to make you guys leather patches. And it worked for some and it, and it didn't work for others, but we had to hustle and kind of get sales any way we possibly could, even though, well, you know, even though you might have a, a strategy in your head, like at the end of the day, you still got to make sales every day. So that's kind of what we did until we finally reached this critical mass where it was like we were making, you know, our own patches were doing, you know, the patches that we make in-house that's, and then we sell them on our website to anybody those were basically our bread and butter and those were the highest margin items. And, you know, those are the things that's like you make something once or you design something once and you can sell it a thousand times. Whereas, 
these custom patch jobs that we were doing for like military and other companies, it's one job, one paycheck sort of thing. Like it doesn't keep earning you money. So eventually we kind of had to shut the patch shop down. I mean, we still do it for, you know, for the military and some law enforcement, but as far as like doing it for other companies or like people or, you know, kind of smaller jobs, like we don't really do that anymore because it, you know, it eventually started cutting into our time. And it wasn't until then that we could really make a strategy that was like, you know, that was really sound because we were just trying to like figure it out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and do you feel, do you feel that maybe there is usually some sort of I don't want to say fear, you know, or put words in your mouth, but when a business wants to decide or has to make a decision on letting go of a product or a service, or it's probably not always an easy decision, right? Well, you know, thankfully with patches, like, you know, I could come out with 10 new patches a day if I wanted, even though we don't make all of our patches in-house, like, you know, we use other suppliers for it. We like, we make all our leather stuff in-house. So, it's really made us nimble and we were nimble, like right from the get go. Like, so we could do, you know, timely stuff. So like if something was out in the news, like, here's an example, don't castrate me for making this political, but you know, the, the, the gun industry is, is kind of, you know, they're not super friendly on, on president Obama. And, and when president Obama saluted a Marine getting off his helicopter with a latte in his hand, Every military person in the country saw that and cringed. And two hours later, we had a double latte salute President Obama patch, you know, for sale that we sold out on like in about an hour. Well, anyways, being nimble allows me, anyways, getting back to your question, being nimble allows us to, you know, to really experiment and see what works and see what doesn't. And if it doesn't, it's really no big deal to put it on the chopping block and get it out. Cause like, you know, on your website, you're, you're competing for eyeballs, right? So like on our website right now, we probably have seven pages worth of morale patches and like some of them work and some of them don't, or some of them slow down after time. And what we'll do is, you know, maybe every two weeks or so, like I'll look at a 90 day or a six month trailing report of like what's sold I'll just cut the bottom 10 right off of the list, like right then and there and, mm-hmm. and say goodbye so that we can focus. Cause you know, if we got to restock all that stuff and it's a slow mover, you know, we have to put the time in that to, to like manufacture new stock and send it out to the warehouse. And you know, it's our time is better spent elsewhere. So I guess my question was, you know, you were telling us that you would have no problem letting go of a, of a product and you were explaining that you're able to pivot quickly. And that is the uh, the reason why the business has been so successful is you guys' ability to pivot, to really listen to your customers. I mean, just this what whole, I, the, I was going to say, the is whole that... idea of killing your darlings, I think, is something to point out because it's something you look in almost any industry and this idea that like we get certain ideas that we're attached to and we really want to sell this product or we really want this feature to be included or whatever it is and sometimes they just flat out suck and then we're not honest with each other enough or honest with ourselves enough to go okay that's garbage i'm going to get rid of it or that's preventing me from launching my product and actually making money or whatever and and just your point about sales and needing to at the end of the day we need to sell and to make decisions in a manner that is nimble and that is fast or that are fast uh, or quick or whatever to accomplish that is is very important 
Right. Exactly. I mean, just to touch on, or just to follow up on that, one of the things that I look at, I'm like, okay, why has this business been successful? And a lot of times people will, you know, they'll hang on to those products and, and they try to make them work as hard as they can, but like, it just doesn't go right. And I look at patches and I'm like, okay, well, why have patches been successful? One is the development life cycle. You know, like you're looking at, you know, you basically just need art. You need an idea and you need art, but it's not like designing a, a machined aluminum product where you have to design it in CAD and then you 3D print it 50 times until you get the iteration that you like. And then you machine it and you send it to the machinist and it comes back three weeks later, but it's not quite right. So you send it back and it, you know, it comes back six weeks later and it's just like this huge thing. Like, like I said, like we can make 10 patches a day if we wanted. Now we're in a really fortunate position for that. But like, if, if you look at, you know, relative to like all these other products that like actually do stuff, you know, I think about, I think about that cooler that had the blender on Kickstarter yeah. that surpassed yeah. every single Kickstarter, you know, campaign of all time. I think that was the most successful one, right? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, just thinking about that product in my head, I was like, oh my God, that's gotta be a nightmare because it's just like, it's just so much back and forth with like whoever's manufacturing this thing and the designers and the engineers and then come to find out like they have this amazing Kickstarter program and I guess they're in really hot water right now because yeah, I don't yeah. think they're going to be able yeah. to, to deliver those units for that cost that like the Kickstarter people got on. Yeah, the whole thing um, is a nightmare. I've been following that one for a little while because with one of the other businesses I work on, we're pretty involved in the Kickstarter community and it for people that aren't familiar the coolest cooler was one of the most popular. I think it was the top funding campaign, at least at the time, potentially still. And they went through like the first round and sent out, I don't know exactly what it was, if it was half or a fourth of the orders. And then they basically ran out of money, put some of the stuff on Amazon in order to try to make more profits to finish the order. So they were just selling them generally to the public at a different price. And just the whole thing, I couldn't even imagine. Like it was, it looked like it was this giant success story. And then all of a sudden, just the whole thing exploded in, in moments. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it looks like a nightmare because like, I, I mean, I know how much time they've got invested into that project and, and, and the stakes are so high. But for me, I'm sitting over here like, with my with my patches and it's like it's really fun because it's like the stakes aren't that high but you know the margins there and the development cycles there and if something doesn't work then it doesn't work and you move on and it hasn't like torpedoed you so it's like it's that to me as an entrepreneur is really cool because you know I don't have to do something at that level to really be able to kind of test the get in the game make some cash and, you know, and, and have like a business that supports, um, you know, like I said, I've got two full-time guys now. It's like, it's, it's super cool to be able to, you know, have a business based on patches, which is such a low level product, right? It's like, it's just, who would have thought, but you know, it supports three families, including myself, plus my two, you know, freelance artists and, you know, who knows, what other suppliers that, you know, we deal with. And it's, it's been super cool. The most rewarding thing about this is that I've been able to give jobs to, to veterans. So they've, they've gotten out of the military, they've come and worked here and then they've, you know, I've taught them like everything I've known, you know, about the processes and the systems that I use. 
And it's all the same, like whether you're doing patches or like some other type of product, like all the principles are the same and all the kind of, you know, the, the system and the structure is the same of like, you know, all these tools that you use to build a business and they've gone on and started their own thing. And it's like, and some of them are super successful now. And it's like, that's been the most rewarding thing. It's like, it's super cool to watch that. Uh, you mentioned that you've, you've taught them, so it's taught them some of the tools, um, for their own businesses and, and and what can you tell us about these tools like what are your top tools for e-commerce businesses and how can they help our listeners well you know like with every vet i think I, let me count i think i've hired uh so i've hired four veterans so far and with every vet that's come and work for me like my my first thing that i say is read the four-hour work week by tim ferris and some of the tools in there I, and i tell them i'm like some of the some of the actual tools in there are outdated but the principles and the mind frame that's in that book is perfect to like come into this business. If you come into this business with that mind frame, it's like, it's great, you know, where you value time and, you know, it's about working smarter, not necessarily harder, but you know, so there's that, you know, and then it's them getting comfortable with Shopify and then seeing all the apps that, that go into, you know, making a successful, what we use like MailChimp, Receiptful, Recurring Billing, uh, we used to use ShipStation, but we've now switched to a warehouse fulfillment center. But so there's all these like kind of like little electronic tools and and resources that you know they just have to know about and play around with in order to get up to speed on. And that's kind of about it. You know, looking back at it, it's super easy, but not everybody know. Like you got to know, you know, which component and and where to add it in and and how it all kind of creates this complete business, if you will, that fires on all cylinders at all times. And um, do you use Shopify or Shopify Plus? I just use regular Shopify. Regular Shopify. But maybe I should look into Plus. <laughs> you definitely should, I would say yes. <laughs> now I feel behind the curve for not really knowing if I should be using Plus or not. <laughs> yeah, your next thing to do for tomorrow morning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, if you wanted our listeners to walk away with one piece of advice, you gave us a ton of stuff that we're able to chew on and kind of take away in order to just make us better uh, e-commerce shop owners and that type of thing. But if you wanted the listeners to walk away with one piece of advice from this interview, what would you want it to be? Oh, I mean, I guess that's what I say. It's what I say to all my guys, you know, that come in here and try to learn and you know, there's trials and, and there's challenges that happen on, on figuring out how to do stuff. But but basically, I call it the 10% rule. And it's just every time you get stuck, just go 10% further, whether it's, you know, hit the forums, you know, send an email to a help center, you know, look up a YouTube channel, you know, pick up a book, like do a Google search. Like it's what's separated me or, or this business from, you know, from just, I guess, failure or success is that 10% of extra effort. Because 99% of the people don't do that, in my opinion. So it's just, I guess it'd be just go 10% further every time you think you're stuck. And you can usually get there, you know, with all the resources and all the, you know, all the materials that are, that are made available to people. I don't know if that's actually, you know, really good advice, but it, it works well for us over it's, here. It's excellent. It's, it's excellent advice. If you ask me, honestly, it's, it's, it's basically the holy grail of success at anything in life is to try one more, I mean, leave no, no stone unturned, right? 
you know, like you said, 10%, when you keep that mindset of 10% more, you know, to say I'm going to, I'm going to walk an entire mile might be like, you know, it might seem like a long way to go, but to say I'm going to keep, keep on walking 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, then before you know it, you've, you know, you've reached there. So, so that's excellent advice. Where can we find out more about you and your company? So our, um, yeah, we didn't, it's funny. We didn't even touch on marketing, but that's basically what we do. It, like, that's kind of what we figured out we were best at is like, is the marketing. But, um, so we're on Instagram, violent little, all one word. The reason I went on that marketing tangent was that a great deal of what we, of our sales comes from Instagram because we're at a low, we're at a really low price point. You know, most of our patches are under, you know, are between five and $10. So it's a very easy impulse buy. But anyways, Instagram, we're at Violent Little. And then our website's violentlittle.com. And then uh, we've got a Facebook, but we don't do too much on it. And a Twitter, which we basically do zero on. Which is funny because on our custom printed boxes, we have all of our social media icons there. And I've got, it's like, follow us on Instagram. And then... Underneath, it's like the Facebook one. It's like, you could follow us on Facebook. Why even bother? And then underneath that one has the Twitter icon. And it's just like, don't even follow us on Twitter either. (laughs) I like your honesty. Because that's something I struggle with as a company owner, too. It's like I purposely got forced into using more of the social platforms just through like my business coach and some other stuff. But I feel that way on many occasions where it's like, you don't really want to talk to me there. So I appreciate your candidness. <laughs> right. I mean, and that's kind of all part of the fun. That's all, that's like a super big part of our narrative is like, you know, if you don't try to bullshit people, like they, they get on your side, you know, they're like, Oh yeah, these people will never try to bullshit me, you know, try to pull one over on me. So it's like, you know, all these, all these companies out there, they're like, Oh, check out our Facebook for like exciting stuff. And it's like, you get there and it's like, this isn't exciting at all. So it's like, why don't there be a lot more, there'd be a lot more, you know, dignity in it. If you just said like, yeah, check out our Facebook, but it's not exciting. Well, let's, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> curious now though. I don't want to, let's go bonus question. So why is Instagram exciting for your company? Well, because we're like this comedic brand, like we can basically say what and do whatever we want to say and do like, you know, within reason, like we, we try not to get, uh, we don't touch racism, like, cause that's just, you just don't do it. It's not fun. Like that's not, that's not part of the brand, but everything else, like you can make fun of, like, cause that's, that's like a huge part of like military culture is like, you know, you make fun of each other, you make fun of yourself. And it's just like, that's just part of getting through the military life. So, you know, Instagram, I guess, is more exciting because it's it's very visual. It's very fast. Like, it's not like Facebook where it's interspersed with all this other stuff. It's like, it's just images. So, you know, our product probably does much better there. Like, A, because I mentioned the price point. But B, our product doesn't require a lot of education. Like, you don't have to sit with somebody for 30 seconds and explain to them what our product does. Like they either know or they don't. They'll either see, like, for example, I'm looking through my Instagram right now and there is a, uh, we just did this patch called resting bitch face where it's like, it's a girl. And we actually used my cousin's girlfriend as a model for this. Cause she has, she has a very good resting bitch face. 
and it says like your donations it's like a jar it's like a donation jar with her face on it and it's like it's it's totally ridiculous and it's like your donations help end resting bitch face for good and uh you know, you look at that and you'll you'll get the joke immediately and realize like, oh, it's a patch. And if you're like in the patch game, or like if you like patches, like you 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 know you know exactly what it is right away. So people at the rate that they scroll through Instagram like super fast, we're able to capture those eyeballs just by virtue of our product being so simple and so non-education intensive. Yes. Oh, I like it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I think that's why it does well, but you know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was great. Uh, great chatting with you guys. Thanks. It was great. Thank you so much, Ian. One Stop Shop is a production of Receiptful. Learn how to personalize and tailor every interaction with your customer by visiting Receiptful.com. This podcast was produced in partnership with Come Alive Creative. For help building, improving, and marketing your e-commerce store, visit comealivecreative.com. To listen to more episodes from this series, you can visit receiptful.com forward slash podcast. Or if you want to give us a rating on iTunes, receiptful.com forward slash iTunes. (laughs) 